Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Onion Unlimited, the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridan. In this episode, I have an update about my JW daughter. I discuss things Jehovah's Witnesses say are invisible and I take a look at the biblical equivalents of a Ouija board and witch ducking. So it seems that CAFCAS, the Children and Family Court Advisory and Support Service, is not at all impressed with children being forced by Jehovah's Witnesses to shun their non-witness parents. You might remember if you've listened to my podcast before that uh, when I heard my daughter was no longer living with my ex-wife but with her uber-fanatical JW grandparents without uh, me even being consulted, I filed a child arrangements order to determine my parental responsibility to have a say in her living arrangements, education, healthcare and so forth. But then after receiving a text from my daughter telling me to leave her alone, I decided not to proceed uh, for fear that it would cause her undue stress. However, this week I received a call from CAFCAS advising me that they are going to proceed anyway and uh, they're going to recommend to the court that a mediation meeting be scheduled for my daughter and I to talk together. If it goes ahead, it will be the first time I've seen my daughter in three years since she was uh, 13. Such is the nature of shunning. Remember the story of the Emperor's New Clothes? The story goes as follows. Two swindlers pretend to weave the emperor, who is a very proud man, some new clothes. Except they don't, but they say they have, and everybody goes along with it, lest they be considered a fool. But then a small child points out that the emperor is in fact wearing nothing at all. He is actually naked. Yes, he is Starkers and everyone's just pretending, basically. But here's the thing. The Emperor, the very proud man, invested as he is in his new clothes, carries on walking around in the buff. Because, well, you know, you'd have to be an idiot not to be able to see it, right? Why do I tell you this story? Well, one of my followers, Meg, asked me to do a podcast on things that are invisible that have no proof. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses claim a number of things about the year 1914, and most of them are said to have taken place invisibly. Apparently, Jesus was enthroned as king in heaven in 1914, His invisible presence began in 1914. The last days began in 1914. Satan was thrown out of heaven and restricted to the earth in or around 1914. Jesus 
supposedly started inspecting the world's religions in 1914 and five years later in 1919 he appointed the governing body as his faithful and discreet slave all very conveniently invisibly now here's the thing when it comes to these incredible claims jehovah's witnesses depend entirely on accepting the governing body's word for it like the emperor's new clothes you can only see these things supposedly with eyes of faith in other words if you're spiritually smart that's the claim but does it stack up let's take a look at each point in turn Number one, why do Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus was crowned as king in 1914? Well, this belief is due to a rather fanciful interpretation of Daniel chapter 4. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who lost his sanity and was dethroned for a period of seven times as a divine punishment for being arrogant. After seven times, he regained the throne and praised God for being the king of the heavens. Now, there's nothing in the account itself to say that these seven times equate to seven years, but that is the claim made by Jehovah's Witnesses and others, to be fair. But interestingly, there is no secular evidence whatsoever Nebuchadnezzar ever lost his sanity or his kingship, let alone it being for seven years. Although something like this apparently did happen to Nabonidus, who ruled two decades after Nebuchadnezzar and ended up losing the Babylonian Empire to the Persians. So could it possibly be a conflation of two stories, maybe, written way after the events it's supposedly reporting on? Possibly. Assuming for a moment that the seven times are seven years, Jehovah's Witnesses take that to mean seven lunar years of 360 days each, a total of 2,520 days. They then take a completely different scripture, Numbers 14 verse 34, where the Israelites were punished with wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for each day that the spies spied out the land, and despite there being no reason to suggest this principle of a year for a day applies in any way to Daniel chapter 4, they magically turn the seven times, the 2,520 days, into 2,520 years. Uh? They then run 2,520 years from 607 BCE, remember that date, to arrive at their 1914 date when all these invisible things are supposed to have happened. It sounds very clever, but is it? Let's take a look at 607 for a moment. Why do Jehovah's Witnesses choose 607 as the start for the seven times? Well, first of all, because they start out wanting 1914 as an end date. <laughs> Before they realised there was a year zero between BC and AD dates, they weren't quite so invested in 607 
In fact, they were quite happy for 607 to be 606 and actually published this as the start date of the figurative seven times. And what did they say was so special about 607 or 606? Well, according to them, and only them, this was the year when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and when the last king of Judah was removed as king. Then, of course, 2,520 years later, in 1914, Jesus, supposedly, was appointed as king of God's kingdom albeit invisibly. Now, this number crunching all sounds very impressive, but to arrive at this date, it disregards one important thing, and that is that historians say that Jerusalem actually fell in 587 BCE, not 607. A bit more on this in just a moment. There's a second reason why Jehovah's Witnesses choose 607 as the start of the seven times and disregard 587 entirely. They read the account at Jeremiah 29 verse 10 to mean that the Jews were captive in Babylonia for 70 years, running from 607 to 537, the year when the Jews supposedly returned to their homeland to rebuild the temple. The scripture in the New World Translation reads, When 70 years at Babylon are fulfilled, I will turn my attention to you and will make good my promise by bringing you back to this place. Notice it reads 70 years at Babylon. Now, that sounds like the Jews were indeed exiled in or at Babylon for 70 years. However, the verse can also be translated for Babylon rather than at Babylon, which of course changes everything. In fact, Byington's Bible in Living English, which the Watchtower has had the publishing rights for and heavily promotes in their JW app, reads as follows, As soon as Babylon has had a full 70 years, I will look after you and keep my good word for you, bringing you back to this place. So it becomes very clear that the 70 years in Jeremiah 29 verse 10 actually applies not to the Jews, not to their exile, but to Babylon. And it relates to the period of time that Babylon was a world power. Jeremiah 25 verse 12 confirms this even in the New World Translation. There we read, When 70 years have been fulfilled, I will call to account the king of Babylon. Now, it's a historical fact, and Watchtower acknowledges this, that the king of Babylon was called to account, literally punished, as the New World Translation footnote reads, in 539 BCE, when Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. So this means that the 70 years mentioned in Jeremiah 25 verse 12 were fulfilled in 539, not 537. So they run from 609 to 539, not 607 to 537, as Jehovah's Witnesses claim. 
So 607 is not when Jerusalem fell and when the Jewish exile began, but even if it was, the 70 years is nothing to do with the exile, but rather the period that the nations were subservient to Babylon, namely from 609, when Babylon took over from Assyria as the world power, all the way up to 539 when it was overthrown by Cyrus. In other words, 607 is irrelevant, which means the 2,520 years interpretation, even if it was correct, wouldn't get you to 1914. It would actually run from 587 up to 1934. All of these points are brilliantly explained in the book The Gentile Times Reconsidered by Carl Olaf Johnson. Actually, one of my uh, YouTube followers left a comment the other week, uh, Rowan Tassi, commenting on episode 62 of Onion Unlimited, entitled The Fall of Jerusalem, when, wrote, Good day, mate, from Australia. <laughs> I have just purchased and received the book The Gentile Times Reconsidered. Have the Jehovah's Witnesses been wrong all along about 607 BCE? By Carl Olaf Johnson. I can't wait to start reading it tomorrow. This book gets amazing reviews from researchers in the field and they state no one has a greater knowledge of this subject than Carl Olaf Johnson. I don't believe they will ever drop the 1914 date as they believe in 1919 that Jesus and Jehovah chose the Watchtower as the faithful and discreet slave. The entire house of cards only stands on the 1914 date. Absolutely. Spot on, Rowan. And I shall speak some more on 1919 in a bit. So if Jesus was not appointed as King of God's Kingdom invisibly in 1914, then when? I would say this occurred at his baptism and anointing. Proof that he was king back then is seen when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in 33 AD and was proclaimed king by the crowds. What's more, he died with a sign above his head stating that he was indeed the king of the Jews. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses will point to Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a stall for your feet, as proof that Jesus was awaiting his enthronement when he was resurrected and returned to heaven, sitting patiently at God's right hand to receive his kingship. But that's not what the verse says. It says he was waiting not to become king, but to destroy his enemies. Besides, the New Testament speaks of Christians as having been transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Now, Watchtower says that this is a different kingdom altogether to the Messianic kingdom that they say was established in 1914, a kingdom ruling over Christians, but not the world. But there's no evidence that there are two kingdoms. Rather, the scriptures teach that the kingdom of God starts out ruling over Christians and then rules over the world. Point number two, there is no suggestion in scripture that Jesus' presence is invisible or extends over 108 plus years. Jesus' presence, his coming and the day of Jehovah are, scripturally speaking, all the same thing and all are very visible. The early Bible students were actually closer to the truth of the Bible than the modern Watchtower organisation. But when Armageddon didn't come, as expected in 1914, they introduced the invisibility of 
option. Bad move because 108 years on, it's looking a bit long in the tooth. The thing is, according to the scriptures, Jesus' presence is very much a visible thing. All eyes will see him. Watchtower interprets Matthew 24, where the disciples are asking for a sign, as a composite sign made up of things such as wars, earthquakes and pestilences. However, it's actually down in verse 30 where Matthew 24 speaks about the sign of the Son of Man and says that it will be a sign that will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will beat themselves in grief and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So very much a visible event. In fact, just back in verse 27, it it, uh, likens it to lightning that comes out of the east and shines over to the west. So the presence of the Son of Man will be. What about Satan being thrown down? to the earth around 1914. Well, many witnesses attribute the outbreak of the First World War to Satan being cast down from heaven. But if you think about it, the the dates don't actually add up. The war started in August 1914, whereas Jesus' presence is said to have begun in October. Now, 1914 at the time was said to be a very important turning event in world history, and and of course it was up to that point. But since then, we've had World War II, where two atomic bombs were dropped. Why not say that that was the start of the last days? Or indeed, something else entirely, something in the future. In fact, Matthew 24 shows that the last days and the end is the same thing and therefore is a future event tied with Jesus actually coming again. So the wars, the earthquakes, just to reiterate, are not the sign. Numbers 5 and 6 next. What about Jesus inspecting the world's religions in 1914 and then by 1919 uh, choosing the governing body as his faithful and discreet slave? Well, this relates back to what Rowan said in his comment. 1914 is, as he says, a house of cards, which is retained, I believe, because the governing body's appointment as the faithful and discreet slave depends on it. If Jesus' presence, for example, was a future event, it would mean that the scripture in Matthew 24:45 hasn't yet been fulfilled. The governing body assuming that it has been fulfilled, basically amounts to nothing more than a convenient self-appointment. And don't forget, folks, the idea of the faithful and discreet slave being appointed in 1919 and being only the governing body, that is actually a relatively new idea. Prior to 2012-2013, the slave was said to be all anointed Christians on earth since Pentecost 33 AD. The change in 2012 was nothing more than a power grab, I believe, on the part of the governing body. So, scripturally speaking, uh, this is something that happens when the end begins. It is a future event just prior to Jesus coming and the rapture of the chosen ones to heaven that's spoken about in Matthew 24. The notable thing is that all these things are, according to scripture, visible Um, Since we've not seen them yet, basically means it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, 
we can assume all these events, scripturally speaking, are future. But of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, in an attempt to appoint themselves as the only true religion, have made these things invisible. It's very much a case of the emperor's new clothes. You can only see it with eyes of faith. If you can't see it, you're not faithful or smart. In fact, you're considered a spiritual fool. And the thing is, to Jehovah's Witnesses, all of this makes sense. It sounds really clever and it takes a lot of jumping through mental hoops to understand. And for that reason, it's quite impressive, but it's wrong. The whole foundation is built on erroneous ideas. And I think the governing body probably knows this. As time has dragged on, it's become abundantly clear that 1914 has no real relevance. It's a red herring. Uh, We're 108 years on, but stepping back and seeing the truth is really hard when you're so invested and the governing body are invested, let's face it. It's an example of a sunk cost fallacy. Uh, Once upon a time, it was just about Jesus' enthronement as king, but now it's all about the governing body's own enthronement as virtual gods in the spiritual temple that is Christ's anointed body on earth. Just on that thought, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is very interesting. If you if you take the Bible as, as being true, um, it states there from verse 1, however, brothers, concerning the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, so it happens at the same time again, it says, uh, we ask you not to be quickly shaken from your reason, nor to be alarmed either by an inspired statement or by a spoken message or by a letter appearing to be from us to the effect that the day of Jehovah is here. Have not Jehovah's Witnesses, has not the Watchtower organisation been saying the day of Jehovah is here for 108 years? Interestingly, the scripture continues, let no one lead you astray in any way because it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness gets revealed, the son of destruction. He stands in opposition and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits down in the temple of God, publicly showing himself to be a God. And those verses, I think, think if you were to take the Bible as being true, I think they really do describe the governing body. They uh, they have been saying that the uh, the day of Jehovah is here for 108 years. Um, they are leading people astray. They are the apostates, I believe. And they definitely have sat down in the temple of God, <laughs> showing themselves to be godlike. They are now near idols worshipped by Jehovah's Witnesses. Of course, all of this only makes sense if the Bible is true. Um, If there is a future return of the resurrected Jesus Christ, a pronouncement of a faithful slave, a rapture of Christians, a battle with the devil and an Armageddon, personally, I don't think any of this is going to happen. I, I think the Bible prophesied it would. And I think the first century Christians were expecting it in their day. And the end, as far as they were concerned, occurred in 70 AD when Jerusalem was once again destroyed, this time by the Romans. But most of what was predicted never came true. Certainly Jesus didn't return in 70 AD, either visibly or invisibly. And there was no rapture. And since then, 
2,000 years of total silence with no reason really to think anything will change in the future. Okay, so there may be another world war, even a nuclear holocaust, especially with the likes of Putin running things. There may even be some kind of mass extinction event. Humanity could be wiped out or they may survive and rebuild. But ultimately, all things, including the universe, are, I believe, an illusion, a projection of Brahman or source, outbreathing and inbreathing. All things are a manifestation of Brahman's mind, and if the end game is destruction, Brahman will, of course, remain and rethink another universe into existence. Now, of course, my critics may say that my beliefs are unprovable, and I agree they are. That's because they're largely based on my feelings, on intuition, not on provable evidence. But what they're not based on is outright falsehoods. So Jehovah's Witnesses may sincerely believe in 1914 based on what they say is evidence, not just feelings. But the problem is their so-called evidence, um, it's falsifiable. So their teaching is obviously untrue. Change of subject now. Let's talk about Ouija boards. Of course, Ouija boards are condemned by Jehovah's Witnesses as spiritistic communication with the demons. And it's, it's not just Witnesses. Many other Christian denominations would say the same thing. But have you ever stopped to think about the Urim and the Thummim in the Old Testament? These were effectively a, uh, a Ouija board that gave yes and no answers to questions that the Israelites had. So the Urim and the Thummim first appear in Exodus 28 verse 30, where they're named for inclusion in the breastplate to be worn by Aaron, the high priest in the holy place. Their location, said to be over Aaron's heart, would appear to indicate that the Urim and the Thummim were placed in the fold or the pouch that was formed by the double construction of Aaron's breastplate. Insight on the scriptures published by Watchtower describes the Urim and Thummim as objects used to ascertain the divine will when questions of national importance needed an answer from Jehovah. Just let that sink in for a moment. They were used to ascertain the divine will. In other words, they are directly connected with divination. Specifically, a type of divination, what's known as cleromancy. Cleromancy is a form of sortition or casting of lots in which the outcome is determined by means that would normally be considered random, such as rolling a pair of dice. But that is, in this instance, attributed instead to the will of God. Now, divination, of course, was condemned in Scripture. Deuteronomy 18 verses 10 to 12 says, There should not be found in you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Anyone who employs divination, anyone practising magic, anyone who looks for omens, a sorcerer, anyone binding others with a spell, anyone who consults a spirit medium or a fortune teller, or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to Jehovah, and on account of these detestable practices, Jehovah your God is driving them away from before you. 
yet here we have a clear case of divination involving the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim, and that doesn't get any easier to say, were said to be for the judgments of the sons of Israel and were used when a question of importance to the national leaders and consequently to the nation itself needed an answer from God, from Jehovah. Jehovah, it was said, would give an answer to the high priest as to the right course to pursue on any matter using the Urim and the Thummim. But this all sounds rather suspect to me. So what were they and how did they work? Well, some Bible scholars think they may have been two flat stones painted white on one side and black on the other, and then you'd throw them down. And if two white sides came up, that would be a yes. Two black sides would mean a no. And a black and a white would mean no answer. Roll again. <laughs> Sounds like a Ouija board to me, and this idea wasn't unique to the ancient Jews either. According to Islamic sources, there was a similar form of divination among the Arabs before the beginning of Islam, where two arrow shafts, uh, just the shafts without heads or feathers, were used to gain answers from God. On one of the arrows was written command, and on the other, prohibition, basically yes and no again. So these uh, arrow shafts were kept in a container and whenever someone wanted to know something of importance, whether, I don't know, to get married or go on a journey or make some other big decision in life, one of the guardians of the arrows would randomly pull an arrow out and the word written upon it was said to indicate the will of God. So this practice was called ran, uh, rabdomancy <laughs> after the Greek words uh, rabd, uh, rod, and mancy divination again uh, there's another word bellomancy or even bolomancy either um, this is also divination by arrows and the word comes from the greek word belos meaning arrow and mancy divination again so bellomancy or bolomancy was anciently practiced by the Babylonians and the Greeks. And again, they were arrows. They were arrows that were marked with occult symbols. Ooh. Um, sometimes there were three arrows marked with the phrases, uh, God orders it and God forbids it. And then the third arrow would be blank. The arrows would then be fired from a bow and the one that flew the furthest indicated the answer. Uh, another method involved basically this, the same thing, but without shooting the arrows. Instead, they'd be shuffled in the quiver and the first arrow to be drawn indicated the answer from the gods. If a blank arrow was drawn again, that meant the answer was unknown. So they'd have to redraw again. In fact, I found a scripture in the Bible in uh, Ezekiel 21, verse 21, that may refer to this practice. It reads there, For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Now, Bear in mind that the Torah may have actually been written in or after the Babylonian exile. So there's a definite possibility, I think, here that the Urim and the Thummim was maybe just an adaptation of Babylonian divination. To be honest, this reminds me a lot of what Watchtower has said over the years about how they get their answers. Rutherford, for example, said that Russell was still directing things beyond the veil. Ooh. Uh, the question, of course, is how exactly was he doing it? 
Sounds a bit like consulting with the dead to me. And even today, the idea exists that the resurrected anointed ones are directing God's organisation from heaven via the governing body, although they never elaborate on exactly how these messages get through. Um, It is all rather a mystery. Even on a grassroots level, uh, there's some otherworldly spooky things go on. Uh, Bodies of elders are supposed to get their direction, aren't they, from otherworldly sources. They say that their decisions are made by Holy Spirit, Uh, but from my experience as an elder, it's more about everyone chipping in with their opinions and just settling on a consensus, uh, usually what feels right to the majority. In fact, it wasn't actually unusual for decisions to be made um, in bodies of elders that I've served on without either praying or consulting the Bible, which I always found rather strange, uh, especially at elders' meetings that were ad hoc uh, put together very quickly after the general congregation meetings to uh, to decide something. Not a prayer, not a scripture, and yet they would say that their decision was guided by Holy Spirit. Then there are the angels <laughs> supposedly guiding the preaching work. Uh, you know, the idea that you're on the ministry and you just get a feeling that you should call it a particular door and then you have this amazing call and the person's really interested. Ultimately, it's just... A spooky feeling and it's not uncommon for witnesses to even look for signs which are effectively omens um, to confirm that they're doing the right thing. Is it really much different than a Ouija board? I don't think so. As for the governing body, their approach these days more often than not I think is just to make a decision and see if it works. Um, They do that especially with building projects. If things go well they make a decision and then things go well they say it's god saying yes if it all goes tits up it's it's a no (laughs) and they have to backpedal essentially it's just guesswork at best a self-fulfilling prophecy but has it ever really been any different weren't the urim and the thumbing basically just a fancy dice roll and so it all comes down really to invisibility (laughs) and those eyes of faith again Um, Talking of which, did you know that the Bible students originally believed that Jesus' invisible presence started in 1874 and it wasn't until 1929 that they changed it to 1914. So just think about that for a moment. Their eyes of faith saw Jesus' invisible presence in 1874 when there was nothing to see. (laughs) Then in 1914, when it supposedly did happen, it was 15 years until they realised in 1929. So here's another weird one for you, uh, what's known as the ordeal of the bitter water. Now, Watchtower goes to great lengths to say that this was not an ordeal in the historical sense of the word, but it, it was. It was basically a trial by ordeal administered to a woman whose husband suspected her of adultery. But here's the thing. The husband had no witnesses to make a formal case, so it all got handed over to God to decide. So more otherworldly jiggery pokery going on. It's described in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. It goes something like this. This is a, an explanation from Wikipedia. It says, The ordeal consisted of the wife having to drink a specific potion administered by the priest. The text specifies that the potion should be made from water and dust. In the Masoretic text, 
the water used for the potion must be holy water and the Targum interprets it as water from the molten sea, but the Septuagint instead requires running water. The passage states that the curse was washed into the water. It's thought that this idea derives from a belief that the words of a curse exist in their own right. Others argue that the curse is a euphemism for a miscarriage or infertility. Remember that for later. Uh, The potion also had to be mixed in an earthenware vessel. This may have been because the potion was regarded as a taboo, which could be spread by contact and therefore also made the vessel taboo. However, the Talmud and Rashi um, explain that this vessel is chosen to contrast the woman's predicament with her behaviour. She gave the adulterer to drink choice wine in valuable goblets, therefore let her drink bitter water in a worthless clay vessel. If the woman was unharmed by the bitter water, the rules regard her as innocent of the accusation. Okay, so you drink this potion and if you're unharmed, you're innocent. That sounds very much like ducking witches, where if the witch floats, (laughs) she's innocent. Anyway, it carries on. Uh, The account in the book of Numbers states that the man shall be free from blame. (laughs) Typical. The punishment in cases of guilt, the text does not specify the amount of time needed for the potion to take effect. 19th century scholars who suspected it was probably intended to have a fairly immediate effect. One of the rabbis said her belly would swell first and then her thigh would rupture and she would die. Lovely. Others maintain that since the word thigh is often used in the Bible as a euphemism, more euphemisms, for various reproductive organs, in this case it may mean the uterus, the placenta or an embryo, and the woman would survive. But, of course, not the not the baby. Uh, the article continues in this interpretation. The bitter potion could actually cause a purposeful abortion or miscarriage if the preg- if the woman is pregnant with a child, which her husband alleges she is, with another man's child. If the fetus aborts as a result of the ordeal, it continues, this presumably confirms her guilt of adultery. Otherwise, her innocence is presumed if the fetus does not abort. So just... <laughs> What are we reading here? We're reading a Bible account where a pregnant woman who a husband suspects of adultery has the priest give her a a dirty potion mix of of water and dust. And if if she survives the ordeal and so does her baby, then she's innocent and the baby is obviously the husband's husband's kid. But if she has an abortion, if her genitals wither and, and die and the baby is aborted that means she was that means she she was guilty so we've got a, a biblical account there of i think forced abortion and it, it sounded to me very much like witch ducking um you know if the if the witch floats she's innocent if she sinks she's guilty in the case of this woman if she drinks this um this contaminated water and survives she's innocent if uh, if her uh, genitals all shrivel up and uh, she loses the baby, then she's uh, she's guilty. Lovely. Absolutely lovely. So basically, my point is there's an awful lot of guesswork going on, uh, not just in Watchtower 
doctrines, but also in the Bible itself. And it involves masses of people in a religious environment, basically giving up their decision-making ability, their spiritual autonomy, and relinquishing it to a special priestly class, I guess, you know, whether it's a priest with um, a Urim and a Thummim, or a a priest knocking up these uh, dodgy potions, or uh, the governing body deciding when things happened or didn't happen, even though they're invisible. It's almost like a clergy of sorts, I suppose, the governing body, whatever. You know, eight men are mysteriously in in the know, getting direction uh, coming through from the other side. And that all trickles down to the elders in the congregations today who claim that everything that they do is guided by Holy Spirit. All very suspicious, I do think. Anyway, that's all from me for this time. Join me again soon for my 100th episode. I can't believe I've done 100 episodes uh, since I started this uh, just over a year ago. Thanks. Bye for now.